Culture Affidavit episode 48. It's awesome! Totally awesome! And welcome to episode 48 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I am taking a look at one of my all-time favorite high school movies. It's 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, which was written by Cameron Crowe. Directed by Amy Heckerling, which stars among its cast Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Phoebe Cates, and Judge Reinhold. Along with me for this will be Todd Liebenau of the Forgotten Film Cast. Uh, and Todd and I are going to sit down and talk, go through the movie's plot, talk about it, talk about its influence, and uh, everything else that makes this one of, the, one of the quintessential 80s teen flicks. So I'll be back with Todd and Fast Times at Richmond High right after this. about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey, bud. Let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. <laughs> Brad Hamilton, the fast food king. I shall serve no fries for their time. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Charles Jefferson, <laughs> a man with a mission. Oh, gnarly. Linda Barrett, not exactly the girl next door. Awesome. Totally awesome. And Jeff surfs up Spicoli. People on lewds should not drive. Jesus. 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 
my skull. I'm so wasted. See Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So before I get into Fast Times at Ridgemont High, I want to introduce who I've dragged along with me to discuss this movie. He is the host of The Forgotten Filmcast, a show that covers obscure and well-forgotten movies, which I've had the pleasure of guesting on twice. And he is also the host of Walt Sent Me, a podcast that is looking at the films produced by the Walt Disney Company and its subsidiaries throughout the company's very long history. Please welcome Todd Liebenau to the show. How are Thank you. That's great. I'm glad to be on the show. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, you you seem to have a such a varied interest in in different movies and stuff. Especially, you kind of share, share my love of just movie oddities sometimes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But, to uh, say the least. Yeah. And you've had me on to talk about. Um, we did tape heads. That's right. The yeah. John Cusack film. And then we did the Dennis Quaid movie, Dreamscape. <laughs> yes, so, with the snake man. <laughs> yeah. And I'll probably find some other obscure 80s movie uh, to do some other time on your show. <laughs> like, Oh, yes. You're you're always welcome back. Yeah. But yeah, those, those, were, those were great. I mean, yeah. Tapeheads is one I, I have fond memories of from my <laughs> high school years. And just, you know, if I need a smile on my face, I just mm-hmm. sing that Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles song <laughs> from that movie. And I'm good to go, you know, so... <laughs> And I also, and, and I've done a couple of blogathons with you, uh, where I did, you did the big league one where I looked at, I took on the task of watching all of baseball by Ken Burns, which, <laughs> the, which was the, the huge task of doing ta- that. It's very, yeah. very good. And I really enjoyed it, but, but it was, it was a long, long haul. And then I did police Academy for your 84 blogathon, which, uh, which was, which, which are both on my, which are both on my site. Um, but we're talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High, a movie that is neither obscure nor forgotten, um, as are most of its cast. Uh, how did no? I, we were saying before we went on. I, you know, I was born in '77, so I would have never been able to see this first run of the theater. I was four or five years old when this came out. <laughs> um, how did you first discover this movie or get into this movie? 
this is one that I, of course, was aware of for a long time, but really didn't come to till much later. I'm a little bit old, older than you. I was born in 71, so I was about 11 when this movie came out. But, you know, I, I did not do R-rated movies until I was old enough to do R-rated <laughs> movies. You know, I was a good little boy, you know. So um, and we didn't have cable for a long time. So I, you know, never saw any of this type of stuff on cable. Um but kind of growing up and being a teenager in the 80s, you always heard about this one and, you know, it, the influence it had on the, you know, like the John Hughes stuff that would come later and all that type of stuff. So I was always very aware of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but I, I don't know that I ever actually got to watch until I was probably about a senior in high school, maybe even after I graduated high school. Um, and, you know, it was just a revelation seeing it, just all the people that, you know, were very familiar faces, you know, now at this point, you know, uh, seeing them all throughout the eighties and different things. And, you know, you're like, Oh wow, look, there's judge Reinhold and there's Sean Penn and the girl from gremlins gets naked and all this kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's one that was just always out there, but pro probably because it was a little before my teenage years and the fact that it was rated R, it, it took me a while before I finally saw it. Yeah. I have a similar story. I had actually, I'd heard of the movie way prior to actually watching it. I'd, or at least heard the title, um, because it's a pretty memorable title in itself. Uh, it stands out and I had seen it on television because we have a channel, we had a. I'm. I grew up in uh, on Long Island, uh, and New York has a channel, a syndicated channel. It's now the the CW affiliate, uh, WPIX Channel Eleven, and they, back in the late '80s and early '90s, would just rerun any of the um, any of the '80s teen movies that they could get a hand on. That's how I found. Um, that's how I discovered Savage Steve Holland because I saw Better Off Dead yeah. on Channel Eleven. I did a and and uh and and I saw this and I don't even think I saw the whole movie I think I might have seen the 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 last 20 minutes or so of it I I distinctly remember seeing the final exam cheating montage <laughs> on television um and at some point went and went to the video store because I was like this seemed like a pretty good movie and I rented it um and I was the person I recognized the most aside from judge Reinhold was actually, and Sean Penn was actually Jennifer Jason Lee because this would have been right after backdraft. Oh yeah. And I had yeah. that movie on video. So I had watched that movie a few times and, and, and she was naked as well. So, um, and this was probably <laughs> my freshman sophomore year, like the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school or thereabouts. Um, when I first saw it. So it was a little bit younger than, than you were. Mm -hmm. Then again, I was watching Schwarzenegger movies at the age of 10. Um, being a parent now, how my parents allowed me to do that, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what that'll do to you, I tell yeah. you. Because I'm at the point in life where my kids are a bit older and I'm like, you know, I look at all these movies that I loved from when I was a teenager. I'm going, okay, do I let them watch this? Are they ready for <laughs> die hard are they ready for this one so yeah i'm, I'm at that really difficult time yeah. where i'm i'm raising my kids on movies but i'm going i don't know if they're ready for this yet or not you know but yeah. this was right around the time in my in my life where i was starting to watch a lot more of these movies like the breakfast club and and um uh pretty in pink and some kind of wonderful and uh 
better off dead. And then um, one of my other favorites, which is uh, another Cameron Crowe affiliated movie, the one he directed, which say anything and, uh, and singles. So it was kind of a, it wasn't really a gateway to anything. It was just that it was there. I saw it and I would got curious and nobody was running it from the video store. Uh, and, 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 and I, uh, and I liked it and I eventually bought a copy and, and, and there, there, here we are. Um, before we get into more thoughts on the movie itself, I do want to run down a little bit of a background on the film. Um, I want to talk about the plot, kind of give what I hope is a serviceable plot synopsis because this movie, it doesn't it, have much of a plot. <laughs> no, that's the thing. It's, it sort of has a plot. So it's, it's hard to do a synopsis of the movie without basically reading the whole movie. Even the Wikipedia entry on the plot of the movie is a long plot synopsis. So you really can't, you can't boil it down to something like a pretty in pink where it's poor girl likes the rich boy, rich boy likes the poor girl, you know, and there's some subplots, but for the most part, it's, it's a very, or Ferris Bueller's day off where it's, kind of all in the title. But this actually goes back to the late 70s. Um, Cameron Crowe, who is currently an Oscar-winning screenwriter as well as a director, uh, back in the late 70s, he was still a journalist. He was most notably writing for Rolling Stone. And um, he had started his career at Rolling Stone when he was very young. If you've ever seen Almost Famous, it's essentially that story. And if you haven't seen Almost Famous, I higher, highly recommend checking that movie out because it's spectacular. He won an, he won his Oscar for, for writing it. Anyway, in, in 81, Crow wrote and published the book uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And this details his year spent undercover as a student at Claremont High School, which is outside of San Diego. The book was successful enough to garner the attention of Hollywood. And a young director named Amy Heckerling was attached to direct the film, uh, which he wrote the screenplay for. Uh, the book, by the way, has been out of print for pretty much the last 30 years. Uh, copies of the paperback and hardcover go for a pretty hefty amount on eBay and Amazon. I've seen them just in my search for a copy. I've seen them for more than $100. Um, cheap copies of the pa- paperback I've never seen for less than 30. And if I have, they go up, they get bid on very, very quickly. So if you ever happen to be in a used bookstore and you come across a copy of Fast Times at Ridgemont High for cheap, snatch it up. And even if you're not going to read it, throw it on eBay. You'll probably make your money back and make more. <laughs> I have read the book, though. I wound up finding a PDF copy through the internet. And um, usually I do a, a separate section of an episode. Like when I'm doing an episode like this where I have a, a movie that I want to talk about, but it has a book adaptation, I usually do a whole separate section of the podcast episode about the book and then I do the movie. But Crow pretty much sticks to the book in the screenplay. Uh, there are a couple of storylines from the book that are abandoned. For instance, there's a jock character who's kind of a skis that he just. I guess he just didn't feel the need to put him in there. Um, some of the events in the film were compressed. Uh, Brad Hamilton's downfall that happens basically through the first half of the movie. Um, in the book, it pretty much happens the same way, although it takes a little bit longer to do. Um, his firing and, and some other incident are like separate and they kind of put them into one and it, all for the sake of adapting something to film. It wasn't anything you know good or bad about the book. Um, there is one... Uh, there is, there are a couple of, a couple of instances and a couple of characters who I might mention later in my synopsis that are a little more fleshed out. 
and are slightly different in the book than than they were in in the film. But um, it's not required reading for your viewing pleasure here. You can know this movie in and out, and you will still know the movie in and out. The book's almost like a side dish at this point, and I guess that's why it really hasn't stayed in print over the last you know, 30-some-odd years, whereas many others have. So it's a curiosity at best. But I would, if you do have the means to pick it up, and you are able to get it for an affordable price, I would recommend checking it out because of just the, um, just because of the almost like the historical apocryphal, ephemeral, that's the word I'm looking for, <laughs> the ephemeral value of it. So the movie itself was released on August 13th, 1982. It got a wider release on September 3rd. Um, the studio actually didn't think it was going to do very well. They just planned on releasing it. Uh, and a few theaters on the West Coast, and we're going to just let it die. And it picked up steam, so they gave it the wider release. It wound up grossing $27.1 million at the box office, which doesn't sound like a lot today, but back in 1982, these are according to Box Office Mojo, by the way, um, back in 1982, that made it the 29th highest grossing film in the year. Now, you have to remember that the highest grossing movie of 1982 was E.T., so yeah, <laughs> that's, but, um, let's look at two teen oriented movies that finished with a higher gross than, than this one. Friday, the 13th, part three, $34.6 million, 21st place and Porky's Porky's was the fifth highest grossing film of 1982 and earned, get this $105.4 million. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Now, Ridgemont, um, like a number of teen movies from that decade, uh, has had quite a life on video. Um, it has a reputation as a bit of a career launcher in the same way that other teenage movies, ensemble movies have. Think American Graffiti from the 70s and Dazed and Confused from the 90s um, because those casts have all gone on. Many of them have gone, had gone on within the next decade or so to something much bigger. Um the movie itself stars Judge Reinhold as Brad Hamilton, Jennifer Jason Lee as his younger sister, Stacy, and they're more or less the two main characters of the movie, although the plot follows about four or five people total. Rounding out the cast are Mike Damone, played by Robert Romanus, Mark Ratner, played by Brian Backer, Linda Barrett, who's played by Phoebe Cates, Charles Jefferson, who's played by Forrest Whitaker, Mr. Hand, played by Ray Walston, you have Doc, uh, Mr. Vargas, played by Vincent Chiavelli, and, of course, Jeff Spicoli, played by Sean Penn, who's probably the most famous character from the entire film. Brad's a senior, Stacy's a freshman, and the plot is more or less a year in the life of those students rather than sort of some sort of like clear narrative where someone has to overcome a problem like they like a girl or, or whatever, even though that's in there. It's not the... You know, there's there's no American Pie um, lose your virginity pact or anything like that going on here. When the school year starts, Stacy has befriended Linda because the two of them are working at uh, Perry's Pizza, which is in the mall, and she go and Stacy ends up going very far, very fast with a few guys, beginning with this guy named Ron Ron Johnson, who's a stereo salesman and is 26, and Stacy's like. 15 although she lies and says she's 18 <laughs> um <laughs> well and it, if jennifer jason lee is supposed to be 15 
then I'm Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago, because <laughs> she does not look 15 at all. <laughs> You're Abe Froman. <laughs> Mark, Mark uh, Ratner, the, the nerdy guy who works at the movie theater, has a crush on Stacy. They go on a date, but he panics when she actually starts making out with him. And he bolts he's turned off by how aggressive she is this eventually leads to trouble for her um not with mark because she gets a crush on damone and he goes home with her one day the two of them have sex in her pool house and she gets pregnant she winds up getting an abortion something damone says he's going to help with he offers 75 dollars, which was half of the cost of the abortion as well as a ride to the clinic and he completely bails on her Linda does get revenge. She spray paints his car in his locker with the phrase, little prick. At the end of the movie, Stacy and Mark start dating, but they decide to take it slow. Meanwhile, Brad wants her to, wants to have the perfect senior year, especially since he starts out on top. He's got a great girlfriend, Lisa, who's played by Amanda Weiss, Weiss who, by the way, breaks up with John Cusack and Better Off Dead. And Brad also has a great job at All-American Burger. He loses both. Lisa, I have something to tell you. Look, I'm a senior now. I'm a single successful guy. And I've got to be fair to myself, Lisa. I think I need my freedom. Don't do that. Please, please don't Brad, do that. Can you cover me and register to him? Okay. May I help you? Uh, yes. This is not the best breakfast I ever ate, and I'd like my money back. Uh, okay. Uh, I believe you have to fill out a form for that. Uh, no. I'd like my money back now. I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. You see... I have to fill out a form and, well, you ate most of it already, so... See that sign? It says 100% guaranteed. You know what the meaning of guarantee is? Did they teach you that here? Sir, if you just wait a minute. Look, just put your little hand back in the cash register and give me my $2.75 back, please, Brad. Sir, if you just give me a minute, I'll find the forms. I'll take care of everything. I don't have a minute. You've made me late enough. I am so tired of dealing with incompetence. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm gonna kick 100% of your ass. Uh, is there a problem here? Can I help you, sir? You bet you have a problem. Your employee here used profanity and threatened me with violence. I'm surprised. I eat here all the time and usually have good service until today. All I wanted was my money back on this breakfast. It was a little undercooked. And he threatens me with violence. Now, I'm going to call your super... Uh, I can take care of it. Mr. Hamilton, did you threaten this customer or use profanity in any way? Uh, why? He insulted me first. He called me a moron, Dennis. Answer me. Did you threaten this customer or use profanity in any way? Yes. You're fired. I'm very sorry, sir. I'll refund your money right now. Hope you won't hold this against us. You know how these young kids are these days. Perhaps another breakfast. I hope you had a hell of a piss, Arnold. Basically begins this downward slide that leads to him working at a fish and chips place where he has to wear a pirate's uniform, gets caught masturbating by Linda in the most memorable scene from the movie, and eventually winds up working at a Mighty Mart 
where he gets promoted to manager after foiling an armed robbery attempt with a pot of coffee. You worked at All American Burger seven months ago. Uh, <laughs> I knew it. You get a job for Coley. What for? You need money. <laughs> All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. Thanks. Can I use your bathroom? Yeah, go ahead. Right. It's the first door on the left. What, like up this ramp? First door on the left. Those are the basic main plots of the film. The major subplot, comedic subplot, basically, is um, actually probably the more well-remembered than either the main plot, either main plot, to be honest with you. And that's because of Jess Spicoli. Spicoli is your archetypical stoned surfer dude. He's constantly at odds with the hard-nosed Mr. Hand. This guy's been stoned since the third grade. Yes? Yeah, I'm registered in this class. What class? This is U.S. history. See the globe right there. Really? Hey. May I come in? Oh, please. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh, ring and all my kids are not here. <sighs> Sorry I'm late. It's just like this new schedule's totally confusing. Yeah, I know that, dude. Mr. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. Hey, you're ripping my car. Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem? No problem at all. I think you know where the front office is. You dick! Spicoli is constantly late to class. He wastes Mr. Han's time, even going so far as to have a pizza delivered to the room. The pizza delivery guy, Mr. Pizza Guy, is played by the late, great Taylor Negron in one of his very first roles, by the way. Now, in 1898, Spain owned Cuba outright. Think about it. Cuba owned by a disorganized parliament over 4,000 miles away. Cubans were in a constant... Cubans were in a constant state of revolt. In 1904... 
The United States decided to throw a little weight around and, uh... Who is it? Mr. Pizza Guy. Again? Mr. Pizza Guy, sir. <laughs> Pour the deviled cheese and sausage. Right here, dude. <laughs> here just what in the hell do you think you're doing learning about cuba having some food mr spicoli you're on dangerous ground here you're causing a major disturbance on my time <laughs> i've been thinking about this mr han if i'm here and you're here doesn't that make it our time <laughs> certainly there's nothing wrong with a little feast on our time you're absolutely right mr spicoli it is our time Yours, mine, and everyone else's in this room. But it is my class. Hamilton, Brandt, Cornfell, up front. Mr. Spicoli has been kind enough to bring us a snack. Be my guest. Help yourselves. Get a good one. And at the end of the at the end of the episode, uh, sorry, at the end of the movie, Mr. Hand repays Spicoli by showing up at his house the night of the end of the year dance to get back the time he wasted in his history class. Then we get a great sequence of what happened to everyone. And this includes basically hearing that, um, Linda's like living with her abnormal psych professor at college, Stacy marker dating, but haven't gotten all the way. Spicoli rescued Brooke Shields from drowning, used the reward money to play, to have Van Halen play his party. Brad's the manager of the Mighty Mart. Damone got busted for scalping concert tickets and now works at 7-Eleven, which was kind of his running gag through the movie. <laughs> Doctor Mr. Vargas switched back to coffee, which you would really have had to have been paying attention to the very beginning of the movie to get that joke. Um, and Mr. Ham thinks everyone's on dope, which is kind of a funny line. Um, and the last the last shot of the movie is is the end as shown on the screen of the classic 80s video game Missile Command. And then and as Oingo Boingo plays over the film. And uh, that's a very cursory look at the plot. Um, you did a good job. You did thanks. a good job. No easy I probably task. missed a bit, yeah. <laughs> but it's important to note that Fast Times Ridge Run High is really almost a series of character-driven moments as opposed to a through narrative. And yeah. so I thought that, well, we just kind of talk about our impressions, impressions that have been specific characters we like, you know, some of the things, what has always stood out about this movie? Why do we like this movie so much? Why did we want to talk about it um, on, on this episode? So I'll let, I'll let you uh, go first since you've heard me go on and on about the plot for the last few minutes here. Yeah. Well, I, boy, I'm not even sure where to start. Cause there is a lot to talk about uh, with this movie. And uh, I, I mean, I guess one of the things that always strikes me about it is that, at the time, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of categorized this movie as being like your typical kind of teen raunch comedy, you know, so, comedy. Yeah. So, something like the aforementioned Porky's. OK. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I think I, I was reading just recently Roger Ebert's review of Fast Times from mm -hmm. back then. And if you want a good laugh. Read that because I mean th that is one example of where Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert was just completely off the mark. Um, 
he gave it one star and he's comparing it to stuff like Porky's and just saying that it's raunchy and it's obnoxious and it's offensive and all this stuff. And when I watch this movie, I'm going, it's not really that at all. It's not an overwhelmingly raunchy movie. I mean, yes, there's exploitative moments to it, um, you know, because it's almost like they felt like they had to do that kind of stuff to get it made in the first place. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, teen comedies back then, you did that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I would definitely not put this on a level with something like Porky's. And, and I mean, even in the marketing stuff for this movie, they gave it that, that impression. I mean, the poster image for this is Spicoli sitting at the desk and you've mm-hmm. got these two girls kind of fonding, fondling him and, you know, whatever, you know, and, and very suggestive and all that. Yeah. And, and th- these two ladies on the poster probably aren't even in the movie at all. I, I didn't look that closely, but it, that has nothing to do with the movie. The, the movie is best described as being a, a slice of life type of thing. And, and you're right. It's, it's basically a series of vignettes as we go between all these different characters. And, you know, as I look back at this movie, and again, it, it comes a few years before my teenage years, but I can really see where this is a very honest, very real portrayal of what it was like to be a teenager in the eighties. Um, now, you know, granted when, where I was getting more into movies was more the John Hughes era. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, you know, I followed those movies like crazy. I grew up in the Chicago area. So that's like re- required viewing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> when you're a teen in the eighties in Chicago. Um, but you can definitely see where fast times at Ridgemont high set the bar for what John Hughes would do in the years to follow. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, when you think about what movies were in the seventies, in the seventies, there's much more grittier tone to things, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, a, a good example of this, a movie I just watched just about a month or so ago that actually reminded me of fast times a lot is a movie from 1980. That's called Foxes with Jodie Foster, um, uh, Scott Baio. Uh, no, Christy McNichols, not in that one, but, uh, yeah, Scott Baio. And I'm forgetting the name that the singer from the runaways with Joan oh, Jett. um, my Sherry friend, something. Yeah, uh, my friend my friend Michelle is going to be like, she's <laughs> screaming at her MP3 player right now. She's screaming at her iPad or whatever. Um, yes, I know who you're talking about. Anyway, it's, yeah. it's, it's the same kind of um, idea where it's this slice of life, a year in the mm-hmm. life of these girls in high school, Southern California, that type of thing. But it's just so dark and and yeah down on its luck and 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 you know dirty and gritty and all that and then just two years later fast times comes along and really kind of lightens the tone of thing i mean yes they're dealing with some serious issues in this movie but it's got this light tone and then you definitely see that carried over then what with what john hughes would do i yeah. mean john hughes's movies i always say i love them but they take place in a fairy tale world it's all light and cheery and, and all that type of stuff. there's definitely a slickness to hughes um hey well that comes from the fact that he was an advertising to begin with but um he also plays um even the breakfast club which is probably the most serious of the four or five movies that he did is is it is my favorite movie he plays it with a very heavy hand as opposed to heckerling and crow who are more apt to kind of sit seem to sit she's a she's kind of and maybe it's because she was a first-time director and he was a first-time screenwriter they're kind of willing to let things just happen in the movie, even though they've set stuff up. It's, 
I, I she was going because I, I was you know doing some research reading here and there about what she has said about the movie, and I've I've seen some of the special features on the DVD like years ago. Um, she was going for sort of an American graffiti esque sort of yeah that sort of because because that movie is one night in the lives of several people, um, and and has, seems to have a lighter tone, but if you look at if you kind of look at the uh, what's beneath the surface of that movie? It is it it is a little bit darker than you realize with its you know pop soundtrack and everything like yeah, that. And there, yeah. There's a lot that that I think this movie owes to that as well. There, there's certainly a lot of similarities between this mm-hmm. and American Graffiti. I mean, from just the the nature of the cast, who you know mm-hmm. would go on to later things. You mentioned the soundtrack, the the kind of yeah a day in the life or a night in life type of uh, approach to things and i think also the fact that you know you can if you were uh, uh, growing up during this era you can look at the characters in this and you can pick out the people that are basically who you were or yeah. who your friends were and i think the generation that came <coughs> before mine they look at american graffiti the same way yeah and I think you you mentioned how Hughes was this sort of fa- fairy tale fantasy world, and one thing I noticed because um, I've watched this movie so many times that I'm at the stage of seeing it where I start to notice things in the background, or you know, like I know the movie by heart, so I start looking at like kind of what's around the movie, and I notice how these characters are not um, the suburban rich kids that you would get out of. Um, a lot of the teen genre that would come later through right. the decade and into the nineties and into the two thousands. Um, you look at Stacy and Brad's house and it looks like every other suburban tract house built probably in the seventies, maybe a little bit earlier and has, there's paneling on the walls. Um, the furniture is all of that ugly brown color. You know, it, <laughs> it look it looks like they just basically went into a neighborhood outside of LA and borrowed somebody's house for the better part of the month and a half or so, however long they took to shoot this and just kind of kept the decorations in place. And they, they deliberately chose a house that was not a rundown shack, but also was not too nice because the majority of the audience could relate to that. And they shot it at an actual mall. They shot it at the uh, Sherman Oaks, Galleria, which has been the subject of a few other movies, most notably Valley Girl. So, yeah, well, and uh, I mean, even beyond uh, Brad and Stacy's house, mm-hmm. I mean, you were, you were mentioning about just how you kind of get the idea of these different people coming from different backgrounds, yeah. maybe even different economic situations. Um, you know, this time watching it, I was really tuning into uh, Damone's. Uh, home. He, he lives mm-hmm. in an apartment building that's a little run down. I mean, it looks like looks yeah. like where uh, where uh, Daniel lives in the Karate Kid. You it know, does. and uh, and so and you know, Damone Damone is my favorite character in this. I think um, I'm not saying that he's a nice guy, <laughs> but he's he's the character that I think intrigues me the most. Um, you know, part I, I guess part of it uh, when I watch this movie, I, I I've kind of created backstories for a lot of these characters mm-hmm. in my mind, I think, you know, and, and, and with Damone, I, I like, you know, he's this guy that he's got his own little business going. He's scalping tickets, which by the way, $12 for Van Halen I mean, <laughs> or 20. If you buy them from Damone, I mean, that's, Oh, to live in those times. I, I know. Yeah. 
but uh, but yeah, you know he he's got this little racket going. He's uh, he's got this accent to him, you know, mm-hmm. which I always kind of imagined that maybe he he's originally from Jersey, you know. He he moved to to yeah. L.A. maybe sometime in middle school, which is why he's hanging out with less than popular guys like Rat, and he's not yeah. the, at the height of the social ladder in high school you know and you know maybe he lays on his accent a little bit thicker than it really is to give himself some street cred you know stuff like that so so yeah i mean but like i said damone is a character that as you go through this you just think what what a what a scum you know but but he's just such an intriguing character i i just love it i think it's because yeah because he's so he's so annoyingly slick almost Fonzie like. Yeah. And <laughs> I started to notice things. For instance, the only k- people who seem to think he's cool are like the kids he seems to have, like the little kids who try to get the, 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 the junior high kids right? who he's scalping these tickets to. And the Robert Romanus really gives him more than one dimension because he plays the, you know, he, he gives the, one of my favorite monologues in the entire movie is his um his monologue about the attitude well naturally something happens i mean you put the vibe out to 30 million chicks something is going to happen that's the idea that's the attitude the attitude yeah the attitude dictates that you don't care whether she comes stays lays or prays i mean whatever happens your toes are still tapping now when you got that (laughs) then you have the attitude and because he's giving advice to Rat, who is just your Mark Ratner is basically every other nerd in every other movie. You know, he's Anthony Michael Hall in The Breakfast Club. He he's Patrick yeah. Dempsey in Can't Buy Me Love. He is the nerdy kid, and I to, was Rat. Okay, I'll just so put was that I. out here right now. So so was I. So don't worry. But Damone is like you know he he's he's got it all planned out. He knows exactly what to do, and yet there's two things I notice. One. When he actually he when Stacy says I think I like you, and it goes from zero to sixty like in the space of an afternoon, like where they go and they have all of what is it ten seconds of of sex in his, in her pool house, like he's not ready for that, and and he's so she's been doing this more or less not that she's been doing it with a lot of people, but she's been there and done that and she's she's kind of developed this aggressiveness about her that that he didn't expect and you can see how nervous and scared he is through that whole scene and the other thing you ever notice is that how absolutely frightened he is of Charles Jefferson through the entire <laughs> film yes yes <laughs> force Whitaker is not it is intimidating I mean he is not you know and he plays the guys intimidating What's interesting about about that character is that in the book, it's a much different story. I mean, Charles Jefferson is the is the um, I think he's a, he might be a basketball star um, in the book, but uh, he was a typical he was a tragic character. Actually, he was the he was the black kid who couldn't stay out of trouble, mm. and he by the end he's pretty much blown his chance. And he, in the film, I think they just, I, it might have just not, it was excised from the film and it might not just have worked um, when he was writing the screenplay. It might have just, you know, 
it might have been too many characters, too many plot lines. So they yeah. just kind of reduced it to this um, little bit of a comedic subplot. Well, and which you know, it's, Spicoli. it's interesting that you you bring that up because one of my complaints with this movie, you know, I, I this is this ranks very high for me. I think mm-hmm. it's got a few flaws here and there. And one of the yeah. things that always comes to my mind first when I think about where does this movie fall a little bit short is I think that the Forrest Whitaker character is really underused in this Mm -hmm. and that um, there's an intriguing story there that we don't get to see because essentially we've got him being one of the few African-American characters in this pretty much all white, you know, Southern California high school. And yet he's the hero. He's the Mm -hmm. star of the school. Um, So I just, yeah, it seems to me like there is a missed potential there with his storyline. Yeah. And, and it's not like it was all filmed and then cut. I just don't think it made it into the final screenplay. And, and I know I agree with you um, because he's almost reduced to kind of a comedic plot with where, where he's interacting with other characters and, Spicoli and his brother and the kid's little brother wrecked the car. And then he, there's this whole football montage of him just leveling everybody on the team because um, Spicoli had taken the wrecked car, spray painted it like Lincoln rules, Ridgemont sucks or something and put it like right on the front lawn of the school. And this is him enacting vengeance for that or something, which is brilliant. This oh, is it's funny. Brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted to jump back a sec too. I mean, one of the things that sure. you had mentioned before when we were talking about uh, Damone is is mm-hmm. just the idea that he, um, you know, he, he is basically a character that is putting forward a, a different kind of front. And then when faced with a certain situation, we kind of see that he's not necessarily what he likes to make himself out to be to everybody yeah. else. And I actually think there's several characters in this that you could put that on. And specifically the main ones that come to mind when I think about that are uh, Stacy and Linda, yeah. um, because I actually think that again, going to my little backstories in the back of my mind, I actually think that in reality, their characters are reversed from what they pretend to be in this movie. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, as we start the movie, Stacy is you know, supposed to be young. She's 15. She's a freshman. She's supposedly inexperienced in the ways of love and sex and all that. Yet it doesn't take long in the movie for her to, like I say, she, she gets busy with a 26-year-old in the dugout at the baseball field, you know, and... All that kind of stuff. It's such. It's such a. She. You could see that she's nervous in the scene, but he is so cheesy in that scene yeah. Yeah. that it works so well. The way he arches his back, and it's like, where did you get that move from? Well, it's just like what the imagine the worst place in the world to have your first experience, I guess. Yeah. The dugout on, on the baseball field. Yeah. yeah. Not very good. But, you know, I, but as things go on, she's just so forward. And and I mean, the, the scene with Rat especially is is mm-hmm. just it's brutal. And and, uh, you know, it, it just makes me love the character of Rat even more that he's just, you know, he doesn't he has more respect for her than she has for herself. Um, But on the flip side, then you've got Linda Phoebe Cates, character who's spends the whole time kind of mentoring Stacy and, you know, she's giving her all this sex advice and, and, you know, answering her questions all the time. She makes herself out to be, you know, much more experienced and all that. And and she's got a a fiance who is conveniently (laughs) away in Chicago, Chicago. So we never see him. Well, 
put all that together in my mind, I think that Linda's full of crap. I, yeah. I think I don't think that anything she says is true. I think she's a virgin. I don't I think that this Doug guy that she supposedly has a fiance is a complete figment of her imagination. I, I, you know, there's there's little moments here or there where when Phoebe Cates actually kind of injects some things into her performance that, you know, kind of give you an idea that she's lying. Um, yeah. Like the scene where they're uh, Stacy's asking about, you know, how long Doug lasts, you know, while they're cutting how... a giant sausage. Right. Right. And, <laughs> and, you know, Linda kind of stumbles over, you know, how, you know, how long her fiance lasts and that yeah. type of stuff, you know, and, and it's clear that she doesn't know what she's talking about. And so I think that she's, you know, really, the inexperienced one. And she's putting forward this, uh, you know, this, this mask essentially of what she believes everyone expects her to be. So, you know, when you boil it all down there, I I think that Linda and Stacy are actually reversed in what their roles are in this. And, and, and Mark and Stacy are very much the same and they're both much younger. And Linda's kind of like, here's this kid who I can, not that she's doing it in a sociopathic way because she genuinely values her friendship with Stacy. I mean, when Stacy calls up Linda after um after the abortion and then tells her she's in tears and she says, you know, he never showed up. Mm-hmm. And and I called and his mom said, you know, he was helping with the car or whatever. And Linda just is like livid and, you know, gets her revenge, but she gets it because this you don't mess with my friends. So there's something genuine in there. Um, but like Stacy, yeah, Stacy goes very fast because it's almost like she's under the impression that that's what she's supposed to do because right. Linda, because she's kind of Linda's giving her all the advice and it's almost like in the back of her mind, maybe Linda's just like, wait, I didn't expect you to actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, I, I when I've uh, a few times when I've watched this, I've gone, Oh, you know, they, they pretty much copied that exact same kind of relationship um, in American pie, because mm-hmm. you've got that uh, the character that's played by Natasha Leone and then her relationship with Tara Reed's character, you know, is essentially the same thing where, you know, she's, she's trying to, to fill in her friend on, you know, her vast experience and such. And it's the same thing when I'm watching it, I'm thinking she, she doesn't really know what she's talking about. Yeah. And Stacy, like the abortion plot line in any other movie or television show would have been so heavy handed. In fact, there's another movie that came out about a year later that has a very similar storyline to it. The last American version mm-hmm. with Diane Franklin's in it. Yeah. Yeah, as his, I don't know if anybody else like really, really big, really notable was in it, but I remember Diane Franklin because of Better Off Dead and Better Off Dead, absolutely. Bill and Ted, she's Bill in Ted, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So. I actually haven't seen that, but I have seen the original film that it's based on, mm-hmm. which I think is, uh, I want to say it's it's an it, Israeli. Yeah, it's an film. Israeli movie. It's called Lemon Popsicle. Um, yeah. So yeah, I know what you're talking about there. But there's a there's an abortion storyline in that and it was you know in in fast times it's it's not done casually but it's not done it's not over it's not overdone it's done very matter-of-factly and um i for one and maybe it's because i have a younger sister she's never gotten to this sort of trouble at least to my knowledge but um 
Brad and Stacy are basically the same age as my sister and I are in, in terms of a part. I was a senior. She was a freshman. And the scene where he picks her up because he's, he looks in his rearview mirror when he's she's supposedly going to the bowling alley. And his first liner is, since when do you go bowling? Yeah. And, you know, in the same way that earlier in the movie, she's like, with the flowers, he's like, I'd ask you who was Ron Johnson, you know. I don't know. There's there's something there. There's a chemistry between the two of them, even though they're not on screen together for that long. That really, really works because when you're that age with a sibling, and they're of the opposite gender, you're really not around each other very much. But mm-hmm. he he does the caring brother thing very, very well, and I I've always appreciated the scene where he picks her up from where he turns around and he waits for her and stuff because um it it I think that's what somebody would have done. Yeah. Well, uh, even even beyond that scene, I think the brother sister dynamic that Judge Reinhold and Jennifer Jason Lee put forth is is very honest, very believable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that whole sequence you were talking about before, I think the ultimate payoff with with that really comes a few minutes down the line, even where with rats uh, response to things. And he ultimately doesn't know what's what's happened yet. He's su- just such a nice guy. He can <laughs> see that. Yeah, she's hurting in some way and he reaches out to her and, you know, it's it's just, yeah, it's it's the moment that makes you say, yeah, get with Rad. He's the nicest guy in the world. Come on. You yeah. Know, so and she. There's a scene where she and Linda are doing they're like doing like mud masks. And she's like, Mark Ratner doesn't like me. You'd have to make the first move, Mark. I, Linda, I did make the first move. I made the second move. And at one point she says, I was really beginning to like him. And you could see that sort of, like you said, how kind of how fake it is that Stacy's acting much older than she actually is. And you can right. kind of see that come through in that scene as well. Because it was like, you know, she even says at the end, I want romance. And they're like, where are you going to find romance here? But, yeah. you know, it's it's with Mark. We'll have to talk about the fe- the very famous Phoebe Kate scene. <laughs> yes. Because yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee's nude scenes are incredibly uncomfortable, and they're supposed to be. They are. They are. And, and yeah, she, she doesn't look 15, but at the same time, she doesn't look 22. Like, she's yeah. not Shannon Elizabeth in, in American Pie. No, no. And, and she does, I mean... Whether or not Jennifer Jason Lee really did feel uncomfortable or she's just really good actress, she does look uncomfortable in those sequences. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Phoebe Cates scene is it's the most iconic moment from this movie. And, you know, not to turn things crude, but I mean, you know, we're you're essentially talking about what is without question the most famous nude scene in movie history. Um, yeah. On um, on old version of the DVD, and and I actually don't own this on DVD. Uh, but years ago, I had rented it on DVD just because the special edition came out. And Amy Hickerling was talking about um how, and I don't know how true the story is, but people would rent the movie from video stores, and yeah. that part would be all blurry because yeah. people kept <laughs> pausing that moment. You people that grew up on DVD, you have no idea I mean, what it was like. You know, because I mean, if you were to pause a scene, not saying that I paused that scene, okay, on VHS, but if you were to pause a scene, you know, you'd get 
fuzzy, you know, picture. You'd get lines going across the screen. And depending on how old your VCR was, sometimes the lines across the screen were really thick. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) None of you have a concept of what it means to have had a two-head VCR or a four-head VCR, (laughs) you know. But, but yeah, I mean, what you can do now with your DVDs and your Blu-rays. But, I mean, so much about that scene just works so well. And, you know, it's... All right, yeah, it's Phoebe Case is, is naked, but I mean the the music in that scene, the slow motion effect, you know, where they've got the water spraying around and all that, <coughs> it, it's just it's perfect. <laughs> it juxtaposed with the intrusion of the reality of what's going on. Yeah, you know how because it's lit so much brighter, and there's it, it's essentially a music video, and then the the. The way the the way the reality of the scene is lit, it's just kind of dull, like everything else in the movie. The movie's just lit very dully on purpose. Yeah. And she jumps in the water. She comes out. She's got water in her. She walks in on him. And it's it's just it's it it's perfect because that is just it's another awkward teenage moment that you know hopefully not many of us have had to endure, but you can at least sympathize with him. yeah <laughs> yeah just yeah. like oh that sucks man. <laughs> and you'll never hear like i'll listen to um i have satellite radio in my car and i'll put on the new wave channel every once in a while and moving in stereo by the cars which is the song that's played in that scene will come on and i can't listen to yeah. that song without thinking of that scene it's like you might right- as well pull over you know because <laughs> yeah it's seared into your head. Um, and then you've got like, and those are the two, the, the whole romantic aspect of it and this sort of fast moving sex thing is is a big part of it. But then you have Brad who, who Judge Reinhold plays very well as the sort of, um, the, the, the big wig at the fast food joint who's the big senior and it, it just, it, it all falls apart to the point where he has the most miserable job. It gets laughed at by, um, Nancy Wilson from heart. Yeah. Future and Mrs. Cameron Crow. I think Mrs. they were dating yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then he eventually kind of, he, he has his redemption at that scene at the end, which is a great scene because he, he, the guy yells at him to open his safe and he just yells at him back because he's like he just started he's like get off my case and then when Spicoli comes out he grabs that hot pot pot of coffee and just flings the coffee on the guy and it's like that is some seriously quick thinking man (laughs) (laughs) I the thing I just I love about Judge Reinhold's character is that at the beginning of the movie this guy thinks that he's on the top of the world because he's flipping burgers you know (laughs) And, and it's like all right. You know, if that works for you, fantastic. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's amazing to see how, yeah, we have such a, a different impression of what the top of the world is when we're, you know, 17, 17. years old. Yeah. You know, but, uh, but yeah, you're right. Judge Hein Reinhold is, is great in this. He's, he's kind of the, he's the soul of this movie. You know, he's, he's that, that reliable constant through the whole thing. Um, but you know, you're talking about that final scene there. I, th- that's as good a time as any just to, to go on the Spicoli track yeah, here because, about Spicoli. because I mean, 
one of the things I, that that scene alone is is one that just shows me how completely wrapped up in this performance Sean Penn is. I love mm. the way that he like is fumbling with the change in his pocket, you know, or he's trying to decide if he wants to buy Twinkies or whatever. And uh, you know, Penn just goes the extra mile with this, and and it's it's strange for me to to just heap such praise on Sean Penn because while I admit he is an extremely talented actor, I'm not a fan of him at all. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I, I'm trying to remember the number of his movies that I've seen and it's this and, um, I don't know. There's probably like one or two others. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me nowadays, there's just, there seems to be just this, pretentiousness that mm-hmm. hangs over his performances and here he just lets it all loose he's it's like i've got nothing to lose i'm this young actor i'm breaking into hollywood what do i got to lose here i'm gonna let it all hang out this is pen when he still had a sense of humor yeah which you know i, I mean I, i've struggled with that over the years I, mean, I don't know if you remember back a few years ago when they were uh, you know first making plans to make the dark knight and there mm-hmm. were there was rumors that they were going to cast Sean Penn to play the Joker, and I was like, "How can you have the Clown Prince of Crime be played by someone who has no sense of humor?" Yeah, you know, he, he, he um even when he was on um inside the actors studio, and James Lipton started with Spicoli because it's really his first big role. Yeah, um, he he is not going to shy away from the fact that he played the character because the character gave him such a big break, but he's very kind of sheepishly admits that he had this role. Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of like, all right, let me get the talk about Spicoli out of the way so I can talk about the movies that I really want to talk about my and, craft or something. Yeah. yeah. And ironically, and I've seen a lot of <clears throat> Sean Penn movies. I still think this is his best performance <laughs> of all time. Um, Cause like I say, he just completely loses himself yeah. in this role and the dynamic between Spicoli and Mr. Hand oh, is fantastic. And uh, I've got, I've got to turn it on you here because I, you know, as I've been thinking about being on this podcast with you, I've been going, I so want to hear Tom's take on Mr. Hand because I know you're a teacher yeah. and I'm like, so I want to hear, you know, how does I, Mr. Hand rank in the mind of a teacher here? I, the funny thing is, is I know plenty of teachers who are so self-righteous and idealistic about teaching and, and that they would look at him and be like, oh, that's not the teacher I want to be. I look at him and I laugh hysterically. <laughs> not that I like – it just – it cracks me up, A, because I had teachers like that. Oh, I did just, too. Yeah. You know, and B, because it's such a caricature. It's satirical. It's – you know, it's it, – you can't take him seriously, even though he's like, you know, and Ray Walston's so good. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Ray Walston's so good in the movie. Just as the way Vincent Schiavelli, who was, who was good in everything he did, yeah. um, was just weird enough as the oddball science teacher. I think when he's giving the demo of the, the corpse. Um, but like, um, but you know, Wal- Walston's just, when he's walking up and down the aisles, handing back the test, and he's dropping the Fs on the floor, oh, and he's like, F, oh. F. And he's like, that what that is, 
that is the most heinous thing that anybody could do in this life. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. all all the terrible things in this world, uh, you know, I just cannot take a teacher that announces the grades as he no. hands back the papers. But I but I have had the moment where I have turned to the class and basically said, "Are you kidding me with this?" <laughs> <laughs> never said what are you people on dope but i've said i have used the phrase are you kidding me like come on <laughs> so I, I find it really really funny i find the interaction between him and pen to be perfect because spicoli is just so clueless he is just absolutely especially he's, the exchange about the food he's clueless but at the same time there's a few moments where i think He's a worthy match for Mr. Hand here, you know, because it's clear as things go on that these two are, you know, trying to uh, take some strategy here about how they deal with each other. And, uh, you know, Mr. Hand is just, I don't know, it's tough for me. There's certain things I can appreciate about the way Mr. Hand deals with Spicoli. There's yeah. other things just about the character that I go, man, if if my kids have a teacher like this, and I, I do have a 15-year-old daughter, by the way. <laughs> if, if my daughter has a teacher like this in high school, I, I'm going to become that parent, I, I think. You know what I mean? Because I mean, if, if for no other reason, I just, I, I'd love to see him get nailed for the locking the door. I mean, doesn't the fire marshal have a problem with that? Yeah. <laughs> Or the um, the showing up at his house at the end, which is, um, which is funny because it's a trope in movies about teachers where they will do that, but they always do it with the best interest at heart. And this is a revenge oh, no. plot. Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is the last move in the whole you know big war between these two. So yeah, you you, you start to get the idea as it begins that yeah. Mr. Hand is really cares deeply about Spicoli's future and he wants to, to reach out to him. No, not at all. This is revenge. Yeah. He, he does it to prove a point. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, but to his credit, he's like, I've made my point. Good luck. And, and of course he looks at all of like the nudie pictures on the walls of his bedroom, and just kind of shakes his head and leaves the room at the end where he's just like, how do I get myself into these things? So, um, you know, to take things further, just on the whole teacher angle, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm curious about this because of other conversations you and I have had where we've talked yeah. about other teachers in movies. And, you know, uh, one time when you were guesting on my show before we started recording, we talked a little bit about like Ed Rooney and Ferris yeah. Bueller and, and Vernon and Breakfast Club. And I know you even wrote a piece kind of, you know, kind of having a little sympathy for Vernon. And, yeah, and I, I think it was called sympathy for Mr. Vernon or something. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, where are you at then, you know, when it comes to, to Mr. Hand in terms of, you know, I mean, is, is I, I guess when you, you compare him to some of those other uh, figures in education from eighties movies, yeah. where, where do you put Mr. Hand? I think, I, I think he is too, he, he, the him and Spicoli thing, I can totally see where you get obsessed with that, like that one student over the course of a year, because it's just, it just takes up so much space in your brain. But at the same time, I think they purposely wrote Mr. Han as a, as a side character, as a stock, almost like a, as a, he's a very static character and he's, he's, he is a caricature of this sort of hard nosed teacher. So he's, he's up there with, um, he gets a little more screen time. He gets more screen time than say Ben Stein, 
in Ferris uh-huh. Bueller. Um, he's not as villainous as Rooney because like Hughes just takes Mr. Ham basically goes like that one step further. Oh yeah. Rooney. Rooney, so, Rooney essentially becomes yeah. like the coyote and a roadrunner. Oh, exactly. That's perfect. Vernon, Vernon, my point when I was talking about Vernon is that I saw a third dimension of Mr. Vernon when I got older because I see the frustration in him that comes from having dealt with these kids for years and you kind of feel for him by the end of the movie, even though you are not sure if he ever learns his lesson. Um, but there are certain scenes where Vernon, you can tell it gets to him and, and he, he doesn't necessarily know how to deal with it because he's been doing this for this long. I don't think Mr. Hand really has that to him though. I yeah. think that, that I think Mr. Hand just really does things. All the kids are on dope and, yeah. and he'll get another Spicoli next year and he'll just be like, you know, and Spicoli will set the bar for him and then he'll compare people to Spicoli for years until the next Spicoli comes along mm-hmm. or yeah. he retires, you know, and you know, for all, you know, he might not be, they never see, show the teachers interacting on in the movie, so you don't know what his colleagues think of him or anything like that. So, but yeah, but yeah so I, I think I think he's not. I, I think as a comedic device, that whole story, that that whole plot and everything, is really uh, really well done. And the idea of it, it being a match where they're strategizing against each other and they're yeah. trying to get the upper hand and the last word on each other, I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting too, just given the fact that. I mean, Mr. Hand is really the, he's not the only adult character, but he's the only primary adult character. I mean, you have Schiavelli's mm-hmm. teacher and they're really the only two. I mean, we, we don't see the parents at all in we this see, movie. We see Stacy's mom for a second. Oh, yeah. she, right okay. before she sneaks out to, to go on the date with Ron. You're, you're right. I remember she that. tucks her in and that's it. And, um. Which is probably to answer the question, where the heck are the parents? You know, yeah. there's always an explanation that my parents are out of town. My parents aren't home yet. And then, um, although mom's kind of, mom says you have to clean out the pool. Your, your friends use it too. And then there's like Dennis Taylor, the manager of the All American Burger, who doesn't look like he's that much older than Brad anyway. Yeah. And the belligerent customer, you know, yeah, you're right. There aren't that many adults. Yeah. And and it's definitely, I mean, again, going back to what we were saying about how, what fast times did set the, set the pace for what John Hughes would do down the road. But with Hughes, I mean, the, the parents were a part of it, but they were, they were idiots. You know, the, the, I mean, the, the, all the teenagers are smarter than the parents. And in fast times, they just say, oh, the parents are all away, you know? So, Yeah. Although a lot of being a teenager, now this isn't true for me because like I, like I said, I was much more like Mark Ratner. So I was, I really didn't have much of a social life and didn't get, quote, get away with much. Although I really didn't have the opportunity to get yeah, away did, with much. didn't try much. Yeah. <laughs> but knowing a lot of people I knew from high school and college, this is very true to life in that they were able to get a lo- away with a lot of things because they were just simply able to avoid being around their parents when they were doing this stuff. Yeah. So it, you know, in other movies, they just kind of shuffle mom and dad off somewhere or the kids are smarter than the parents in that sort of way that's trickled down all the way to like, like all those Disney channel shows where the kids are almost too witty for their own good. And the parents are almost too dumb, you know, I don't even watch them, but I see them advertised enough. Um, 
here there's something more genuine about it where they just simply are probably working and the kids take advantage of when mom and dad are not home. Nobody throws a raging kegger in this movie either. Right. <laughs> Which you know? given, given the kind of, of teenage movies we get nowadays is very refreshing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've reached the point where if I see one more, you know, teen comedy where there's a raging kegger and it with a slow motion scene in it, I'm just going <laughs> to lose it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, because the biggest part of the movie is the school dance at the end. <clears throat> and even that is not epic on the scale of, you know, the prom. It's it's in the gym. It's just simply an end-of-the-year dance. And I think it's just a plot device to bring all the characters together in one location right. um, for what's essentially the climax of the movie. Uh, because the next scene is the uh, armed robbery scene, which is, you know, which is the end. Yeah. So... Yeah, the, I, I think that I think it does pretty well of disposing of the parents in a way that's more realistic than say, um, "Oh, my parents are off in Europe because I'm the rich kid partying and <laughs> yeah, or something." Yeah, yeah. So I see a lot of this movie in Superbad, for instance, even though that also has a lot of the same tropes we were just kind of like rolling our eyes at. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I mean, I would imagine. I mean, it's hard to me for me to put myself in the in those shoes. But a movie like Superbad is, you know, may hold a similar place for the people that uh, of this generation. You know, just in terms of being able to look back and see the things that that they remember as being kind of the 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 th- the big things of the time when they were in high school and this is this is a time capsule you know there's yeah. there's just all those little things and and like you said the more that you look at it the more you notice things in the background and and you know the that just take you back 30 some years ago i mean you know from the mall to, yeah. to sniffing the the <laughs> test papers you know i was just about <laughs> to bring that up we that's, did that in elementary school. Oh yeah, I did that all the time. That's you know another thing that probably a lot of people watching this movie today do not I, have any clue what that's all about. I, I work with somebody who was born in a very fr- friend of mine at work is was she was born in eighty five I think, and um, another friend of ours at work is was is about a year younger than I am, and the two of them, me and this other guy. We're to, we mentioned this once, the whole idea. Remember when you used to sniff the dittos when you were in elementary school? And she kind of looked at us weird. And I said, oh, I explained the whole thing of the mimeograph machine and the ink and how it kind of, even though it, it when we were kids, we just thought it smelled funny. Yeah. In the same way we used to smell those mar- magic markers. Um, But the, the older kids would try to get a buzz off of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, every time I watch this movie, I see that scene. It takes me back with that because, yeah, it it was you would get these this paper that had this weird purple type on it. Mm -hmm. And and if it was something that was pretty fresh, if they had just done these copies uh, recently, the paper was still kind of wet, Wet. too. You get this kind of, you know, this limp piece of paper with purple type <laughs> on it and yeah everybody had to sniff that thing um you're right it's a lot like sniffing a, a marker because it's just got this unique smell to it and yeah that's those times are gone sadly yeah. i guess but i was looking at the soundtrack because the soundtrack did pretty well um it, it did spawn a, a hit for jackson brown which was somebody's baby uh which is essentially the the Jennifer Jason Lee theme yeah. because it's what's playing 
right around the time that she goes, you know, loses her virginity. Um, the funny thing is, is that, okay, this is an eighties movie. And I had to remind this me that I had to remind myself that this was 82. Um, and this, what we associate with the eighties doesn't really start to peak for another year or two. Right. Yeah. So the Hughes films soundtracks really feel more like eighties soundtracks. Whereas this is almost that sort of weird, you know how every decade almost has that hangover period that lasts until the next decade. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the tail. 82 is kind of the tail end of that seventies hangover. Things are kind of finally stopping, you know, the eighties are finally coming into their own. And you have, um, you have a, actually a pretty good Jimmy Buffett song, um, a Stevie Nicks song. And then you have like, I think at least one solo track by five members of the Eagles. Yeah, I'm looking at the list here right now. You've got a Joe Walsh song. You got a Don Henley. Uh, Don Felder's got a song in there. Timothy uh, Schmidt has yes. one. Yeah, and I yeah. think Glenn Fry has one as well. Oh boy, maybe I'm looking. Yeah, I don't Billy- see Glenn Fry okay. on the soundtrack album, but yeah, and I mean, you, you're right. It's 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 not these aren't the songs that are those iconic eighties movie songs. No. Um, we weren't there yet. It yeah. is a great soundtrack though. And you've got, I mean, just, well, you've, you've got some of those, those acts that have just that iconic sound of the time. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. the go-go's all over the place in yeah. this thing, you know, and that alone is <clears throat> going to take you right back to that era. 82, yes. 83. Yeah, it will. Um, th- the other thing was that something about the music that's very interesting is that uh, I had this on VHS. I still have my VHS copy for years. The original music was not on the VHS. Let me see. There's two scenes. I know specifically there might be a third. Um, the very first scene at the high school, it's where you see a guy throwing toilet paper at the high school and Tom Petty's American girl is playing Yes, for years in the VHS that was not on there because oh. I, they had probably, well, and, um, there's another Cameron Crowe penned movie, uh, from about, was it 84 called the wildlife Yes, that, um, they used to show on TV all the time. And I, I, I'm really really want to see i've never seen it and the reason it has it was released on vhs once and it was never released again in the music right to the very or the holdup because there's a lot of van halen stuff in there mm. well and you yeah. know music's always a big thing with yeah pro because he started writing for rolling stone he was writing oh, yeah. all about music i wouldn't be at all surprised if the script for this movie i've never read the actual script but it wouldn't surprise me if there were actual mm-hmm. notes in there as to this yeah. is the song that should be here well, um because yeah, that's very much Cameron yeah. Crowe's wheelhouse. What's funny though is like American Girl's not on there, and then the Oingo Boingo song at the end is not on the VHS version. They they replaced them both with similar sounding songs or something very much more generic. And then when I watched this on DVD for the first time, I was like, oh, okay. The ir- irony is though, Led Zeppelin never gives people the rights or up to a certain point would never give people the right to use their music in a movie. Mm-hmm. And he, and, and, and Heckerling probably because of Crow was able to use cashmere in a scene, which is a great touch because the line right before they use it is Damone says, when it comes to making out, always put on side one of Led Zeppelin four. Yeah. And it shows you how inept Mark Ratner is. 
because even people with a passing knowledge of Led Zeppelin know that Cashmere's on physical graffiti. <laughs> so you put the entirely wrong album in the play in the tape deck. So, but he he was able to use Cashmere. So, but um, so because so I ended up watching, I, I have my VHS copy. I didn't feel like digging it out of wherever I found it, so I just rented it. It's available on um, you you can rent it for like three or four dollars on Amazon, and I streamed it through my Kindle. The digital transfer is really good, by the way. It's very, very crisp. Um, and uh, what's kind of fun is that uh, if you have the IMDb app on your, I have a Kindle Fire, and I have the IMDb app, and if you touch the screen while you're watching the movie, the there's a, a little bar runs down the side of who's in the scene. Yeah, yeah the that's actors. A great I was feature. like, that's really kind of fun. That's so cool. I was having fun with that. But uh, no, the the transfer on the on the DVD has always been good. There is a Blu-ray version, but the 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 streaming version, it looks really, really good. And it was just kind of funny how there were a couple of movies in the 80s that they would release them because they could make money off them. They just swapped out some of the music because they couldn't get the rights. Yeah. And they wanted to make money off of the release of this movie. So I just thought it was funny that it was a good decade before I actually saw the movie with its original soundtrack in there. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, And... Very briefly to mention, even though neither of us has actually seen it um, and have vague memories of it, there was a spinoff television series from 86, so like four years after this movie, called Fast Times. It lasted seven episodes on CBS. And we mentioned because I mentioned because it's, you know, relevant to the the episode, but it also it also featured some actors in very, very um, early roles. Courtney Thorne Smith played uh, the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Claudia Wells, who at that point was Marty's girlfriend and Back to the Future was the Phoebe Cates character. Patrick Dempsey played Damone. And the guy who played Spicoli was um, Dean Cameron, I believe is the actor's name. And he played Chainsaw in Summer School. And we'll try to track that down. I might see if I can track that down and write a blog post about it or something. <laughs> I love Chainsaw and Dave. They're oh, God, I best. love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a movie that, I, that I'll want to cover at some point. But, yeah, um, but overall, I mean, I can watch this movie again and again and again. I will, I will hover over it, so to speak, when, it, when I come across it on cable. Um, in the same way, I will do this with another one of Heckerling's films, which is Clueless, uh, which was her return to the teen genre about you know, 13, 13 or so years later with Alicia Silverstone. Um, it's it's endlessly watchable. And even though there are some elements of it that do look a little dated, they look dated in that sort of nostalgia trip sort of way as opposed to dated in that sort of like, this just looks really old. Yeah. Yeah. sort of way that some movies that some movies have um it, it is really interesting that that heckerling was able to you know she had this definitive teen movie of the 80s and she did it again in the 90s is you know it, it's uh and two two very different uh you know approaches there with it but yeah it, it's it's unique that a director would be able to uh you know create this signature teen film for for two decades in a row like that yeah um Something else that was in my notes, and, and I probably should have brought this up like maybe 10 minutes ago when we were talking about who's in the movie. Um, some people in bit parts, because um, you brought this up on an episode of 
of of your I think your show a while back you were doing a Nick Cage film. Yes. And he was he's in this movie but he's credited as as Nicholas Coppola the one and only time he's ever it's his first film credit. Yeah, very first and one. And and it's a it's like spotting Renee Zellweger in in an early in like decent confused or reality bites like it's a blinking you miss it moment because he doesn't have a line. He's just kind of in a scene. Um I think he's credited as like Brad's bud or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um Anthony Edwards and Eric Stoltz play Spicoli's stoner buds. This I found interesting. At the end of the movie, Mr. Vargas is at the dance with his wife, and he introduces her to uh, a couple of the, the nerdier kids. I think Ratner is one of them. That is Lana Clarkson, who unfortunately was murdered by Phil Spector. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Pamela Springsteen, sister of Bruce and the star of one of the sleepaway camp movies. I don't know if it was one or two is in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they, there's actually several references to Bruce Springsteen in the mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> Cause I think Brad wears a Springsteen t-shirt and yeah. he's got a Springsteen bumper, bumper sticker, sticker, you know? Yeah. So yeah, this would have been around the time of 82 is Nebraska, but prior to that was the river. So, and he had, I mean, he shot the superstar and was born in the USA, but the river was still a very, very popular album. Um, and, um, Nancy Wilson, of course is, and, and one cameo that I was like, I recognized that name and I looked it up. Martin breast who directed Beverly oh, yeah. Hills cop was the coroner in the morgue, uh-huh. the doctor yeah. in the morgue. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Well, and, and, uh, two other names too, that, um, are, are kind of a little more obscure, but you know, some fans of eighties movies will recognize, um, Kelly Maroney is, is kind of the other cheerleader. Mm-hmm. And she, she was in um, night of the comet, which oh, was, yeah, she was the, she was a cheer. She was the, yes. Um, I love that movie. Oh yeah. And, that's, oh, man. that's an underrated gem. Yeah. For sure. Um, and then the, this is the one that just threw me all the time. I could not place why I knew this guy, but, um, the the character of Arnold played by Scott Thompson. <laughs> yes. I was like, okay, I, I know I've seen his name before. Where was it? He was in Police Academy. Yeah, he, yes, <laughs> yes. He plays one of the two um cadets who Captain Harris who's they're 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 the two who keep ending up in the blue oyster bar. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and actually I, I it surprised me too as I was getting ready. I was looking at all the cast members and just trying to refresh my memory on what all they'd been in after this and um actually brian backer who plays rat mm-hmm. uh you know he was still playing a teenager six years down the line he played one of the skater dudes in police academy, academy four. four yeah <laughs> so. he shows up or he would show up every once in a while and you'd he was a very much a hey it's that guy of the right. 80s in the early 90s like he'd show up on a sitcom or something um and like we said, a number of people, Robert Romanus never really went to, he would, Robert Romanus basically became a character actor Yeah. from that point on. It would pop up in things every once in a while, but he never got anything bigger than Damone. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, and then like I said, a number of these people went on to careers that were um, very noteworthy beyond just Sean Penn, you know, um, you know, a, a number of them have, have had 
had success through the 80s and 90s and are still successful now or at least working steadily. Um, so um, final yeah, it's, thoughts. It's actually, it's, I was going to say, it's weird to think that like Judge Reinhold, for example, here, mm-hmm. here he's playing a high school student in this and two years later, he's a cop in Beverly Hills Cop, <laughs> you know. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, so uh, final thoughts on, oh, then he would play Fred Savage's dad later on in the decade. Oh, yeah, vice versa. Vice yeah. for, it was, was it vice? Yeah, he was vice versa. Yeah. What was the Kirk Cameron one then? Like father, like son. That's, right. That was with Dudley Moore. Yeah. yeah they came out at like the same time. Um, so what, final, because I don't want to end on vice versa. So <laughs> final thoughts on the movie. Oh, this is, I, I, this is just a quintessential 80s teen movie. And it's, it's one that, um, I, I, I mean, I think outside of just looking at the 80s cinema in general, you know, this is a movie that it is one that I would consider required viewing. It is, like I say, it's a time capsule of this time frame. It is a a very well made, well acted, um, you know, teen driven film. I mean, every decade has their own definition of what a teen film is, and this is right up there at the top of the list uh, when it comes to the eighties. Um, you know, I would, for me, like I said back at the beginning, kind of the more um, what I consider to be the more iconic ones for my own youth are later down the line with the John Hughes stuff. But mm-hmm. I recognize that without Fast Times at Ridgemont High, we wouldn't have the John Hughes stuff. No, because up up until that point, teen movies had been. You mentioned Foxes, which that we'd have to look up and see how well that did. But really, teen movies had been either that sort of screwball sex comedy or uh, horror movies. Yeah. You know, they were either getting hacked to death or they were because they had sex, but they were getting, or they were, they were having, they're trying to have sex. And, and this, you're right. This put this whole, this took, this took the kind of sex comedy aspect of it and, and really grounded in the reality that, that, um, that worked because it kept it lighthearted. Yeah. Well, and you can certainly see the transition just looking at 82 um, mm-hmm. because we mentioned Porky's earlier, same year. Yeah. Okay. Porky's is a teen raunch sex comedy. <sighs> and the same year we have fast times at Ridgemont high, mm-hmm. which certainly flirts with that a bit, but it is not that it is the transition to then what we would get with the lighter fare when we get to the John Hughes era. Yeah, because 16 Candles is 83 or 84? 84. It's 84, okay. And and The Breakfast Club is 85, although it takes place in 84. But, you know, it's – you're right. It it is just – it's loom – that whole era and and then – and the genre just kind of – the teen comedy genre, the teen romantic comedy genre as it is kind of takes off from there. Yeah. As as one of my favorite books – on this topic, it was a book that came out in the mid '90s by Jonathan Bernstein called *Pretty in Pink: The Golden Age of Teenage Movies*. Bernstein says that Heather's killed the genre stone dead. <laughs> Even though that movie tanked the box office and became a cult classic, he 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 says the like really he, he mentions that the only significant film to wash up in the wake of Heather's was *Say Anything*. And it really is a demarcation line of like, this is where the eighties ends. It does. Heather's really <clears throat> represents yeah. a shift in tone when, yeah. when it comes to the teen movies. Yeah. So, and then it, and, and Heckerling Heckerling's the one to kind of bring it back to the lighthearted thing with clueless in 95. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it is very interesting how this really is the start 
of of an era it's sort of like a vanguard type of flick that um has wonderfully stood the test of time so it is available um i don't remember the last time netflix streamed it um i rented it from amazon it's available on blu-ray it's available on dvd um, you could rent it through DVD if you have the Netflix DVD service, which I've been holding on to because Netflix makes a heck of a lot more things available via DVD and Blu-ray than they yeah. do via streaming. <laughs> I, um, I, I'm not giving up my DVDs. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, Amazon, you can rent it through their streaming service for about $3.99. Um, if you're renting it in HD, it might be slightly cheaper if you're not, and you can buy it streaming for to watch whenever you want um, for like twelve ninety nine or something. But, and uh, I still have my old VHS copy too. So, so it's, it's, this is not a hard movie to find. And if you have never seen this movie, uh, it even pops up on cable every once in a while. Um, but if you've never seen this movie, I mean, I think we both recommend tracking it down right now and putting Absolutely. it in because it's really, really fun. Yeah. Um, so Todd, uh, before you go, thank you for coming on. Um, this was, this was very fun. I, I was, I've been looking forward to this for a while. It was and, a blast. Yeah. Was a blast. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you. Oh boy. Uh, you can find me lots of places. My primary blog is called forgotten films. Uh, so you can find that at forgotten Um, my Twitter handle is at forgotten films with a Z. Um, so yeah, that's where you can kind of find the, that's the base for my reviews for my forgotten film cast podcast. Also the Walt sent me podcast. You can find links to all those things there. Um, you can also find me on a few other websites. I write a weekly feature, uh, over at man. I love films.com, which is the, the vintage vault reviews. So that's where I get to cover classic movies that those appear on Monday mornings over there. And then on Friday mornings, I write for another site that's called channel superhero over at channel superhero.com, which focuses on, uh, superhero and comic related TV shows. And so right now I am working my way through the early eighties animated series, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. <laughs> so, so yeah, if you want a episode by episode, look at that. I mean, that, that was basically where uh, Marvel kind of was trying to jump on the, the bandwagon that the super friends were doing, you know, and so they teamed up Spider-Man with Iceman from the X-Men and, uh, basically a female version of the human torch named Firestar and made their own little version of the super friends, which was the spider friends. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm I'm uh, about uh, halfway through season one on that right now. So yeah, check that out every Friday for, uh, for more Saturday morning cartoon fun. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. And um, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with, um, think my latest episode of my dc comics retrospective that i'm doing all year and then who knows from there so once again uh todd thank you for coming on and uh thank you for listening and take care You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. 
Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. Bye.